Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on Sonia Stevenson, head of music at Music Patron, a startup within Sound and Music, which is the UK's national organization devoted to maximizing the opportunities for people to create and enjoy new music. Historically, patronage formed an important part of a composer's income and sustainability. Music Patron reimagines this idea for the 21st century with a community of patrons supporting individual composers directly with small, regular, monthly donations. Financial factors such as insufficient streaming fees, the pandemic, and diminishing public funds have led to less music being produced and fewer opportunities for composers to take risks, to experiment, and to innovate. Music Patron addresses these challenges by giving individual composers the financial freedom to create new music. Find out more through my discussion with Sonia and then visit musicpatron.com. Thank you for making time. No, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Very excited to be talking to you. Well, I was trying to figure out where I would like to begin, and I think the beginning of Music Patron might be the place to start, and then we could branch off from there. I don't want to presume what the audience does and doesn't know, so I would love it if you would take us through a little bit Tell us about Music Patron and the problem it's solving or the need it's filling. Wow, Music Patron. We've just been working on our elevator pitch. So now is the perfect chance. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit up and watch. Yeah. <laughs> so Music Patron, we are trying to secure the future of music, quite simply. Why are we trying to do that? Because there's a real danger that composers can't create in the current climate. So how are we trying to solve that problem? We're trying to connect composers with music lovers and give those music lovers a chance to truly support those composers, both financially, but also be part of their creative world and find out more about them. So that's the kind of it in a nutshell, but there's so much more I can say. Oh, sure. No, we'll unpack it. We'll unpack it. <laughs> tell, could you tell me a little bit about, again, because I don't want to make any assumptions why is the climate so difficult for a modern composer to survive and thrive? What, what, what's contributing to their hardship? Well, I think first and foremost, it's financial factors. It was hard enough before the pandemic, but now since then, it's even harder. Things like streaming, you know, when you look at the number of streams that you need to have in order to make minimum wage, the number is huge and most people are shocked by it. Other sources of funding for composers that exist in this country, you can apply to the Arts Council, but that funding is becoming increasingly competitive and comes with lots of strings attached as well. So if you have a particular vision as a composer and particular music that you want to write, if that doesn't fit the box that you're trying to apply for, then it's really, really hard to create that music. And for me, this is just part of a bigger picture because if we don't have new music in our lives, like I was taking this almost to the nth degree. What would a world without new music look like? Hmm. And actually, it starts to get a bit scary. Imagine if we were just listening to the same music day in and day out. Oh, that would drive me mad. <laughs> so we need new music of all kinds, of all genres, of all shapes and colors, 
kind of bring richness and spiciness to our to our lives. Is there a criteria for the type of composer you work with? And are you, are you specifically using the word composer as opposed to songwriter to denote a certain type of artist that you're working with? Really good question, because we're aware that the word composer comes with a lot of baggage. And yeah, even in the way that you framed that question, if you say the word composer, people think of a certain type of genre of music. But we really want to start to unpack that term and say, like, who is a composer? Well, in my definition, it's anybody who writes music, anybody who creates sound in some way. So we're using the term quite broadly, but we are aware that it comes with baggage. We're trying to be thinking, is there another word that describes this broad group of creative people? And so writer is one thing, but then that misses out this kind of writing, and it's really hard. So I don't think there is a perfect word. Composer isn't the perfect word, but it's the word we've chosen for the moment. If we can say there's a generally accepted definition of the term composer, or at least what what people's preconceptions might be, are you operating primarily within that lane? Is it a composer of instrumental music or within a certain tradition? Like, Who are you working with now and how how would you frame them within the world of the arts? At this very early stage of music patron, we have nine composers we're working with, and ultimately we want that to be a much bigger group. But while we're still starting small in beta phase, testing lots of things, we've deliberately kept it small. And those nine composers represent a real variety of genres. So there's people writing contemporary classical music for orchestras, for string quartets, opera houses. There's somebody working within musical theatre and comedy improv, and she also writes a lot of music for computer games. There's somebody else, Ayanna, I should give them names. They have real names. They're not just somebody. (laughs) I'm sure your audience will be interested in them as well. Yeah, please. This wonderful kind of improv music theatre game music writer is called Yasani Parapanayagam. Somebody else I was going to mention is Ayana Witter-Johnson. And her music is, uh, well, she's a performer as well as a composer. And she writes for herself. She writes for other people. It's a mix of kind of hip-hop, jazz, soul, classical, all in this kind of beautiful melting pot. Within contemporary classical, you have people working in kind of different extremes of even that genre. So there's a composer called Mark Yates whose music is challenging and interesting and really makes you think. He's a painter as well, and he's really interested in how kind of composing and painting and those creative acts go together and inspire each other. So he's been thinking about creating paintings for his patrons and what that might look like as well. There's a whole spread there, and I think for me that's the fascinating thing, is how can we make this work for many different types of composer who are writing in different ways, but also have different audiences that, that they're connecting with. What do the composers have to do to have a successful relationship with their patrons? And, and how might that be different in the modern era? In other words, do they have to have skills? I don't know. I think of things like social media or how much of their thinking has to be outside of what they'd normally do as an artist? And, and how, how comfortable is that are you finding for, for a modern composer? These are all questions we're trying to answer and unpick at the moment. And 
there's some learning that we're discovering already, but there's lots more we're going to discover along the way. What we kind of know already, with this first cohort of composers, we deliberately chose composers who already were somewhat digitally literate. So all of them had a kind of online presence and at least the basic sort of social media following. Not necessarily huge though, and there's a range within the composers. But I think what characterizes all of them is that they have a story they want to tell. And I think in many ways that's the most important thing, because whether you're telling that story through different social media channels or through music patrons or in real life, on stage or at a talk, what is it about you and you as a composer and a creative person that you want to convey to other people? And I think if you don't have that impetus, that urge in some way, I'm not sure a music patron would work for you because it's, it's about sharing, it's about connecting. When you think about the future potentials for the platform, is it a curated experience or is it a self-service experience? Meaning if I'm a composer and I'm willing to, to use the platform, I can just sign up? Or is there some screening or criteria that you'll apply as you, as you open it up to more people? So at the moment, our, we've done a lot of deep thinking about this. And we think that going down the curated route is best for now. And that's based on a lot of patron feedback that we've had. So even before we launched the beta, we were interviewing lots of would-be patrons and talking to them. And many of them said that if they were faced with a kind of hundreds of composers on a screen, they wouldn't know where to start. And they felt that they were put off by the idea of new music because they didn't feel that they had the knowledge to pick the best composer, in quotes. They actually felt much more comfortable, much more likely to use the site if there was a curatorial aspect to it. So how we're imagining going forward is that we'll have an open call, so anybody can apply, but then they'll go through an application process and we will choose people based on certain criteria and we want to put in place a, a really interesting, diverse panel to be making those decisions as well. One of the things that strikes me as, as you were articulating that was the, the piece of feedback about not knowing if you're picking the best composer. And I could imagine there's an element of wanting to feel like you're backing a winner. And whether you would say that explicitly or not, I, I could imagine that that would factor in that. It would be very interesting to understand the different cohorts of patrons even over time. Some people who simply have a, an aesthetic and a taste and they trust that and other people who want to support the arts but don't really know how to pick. And I would imagine there's other variations, but the the patron part of it and how to engage and motivate the patrons seems like it would be a very interesting part of the, the product development. That's it. You've hit the nail on the head. The patrons are absolutely key to this. And one of the questions we've been asking ourselves is who is music patron for? And at first, my answer was, what's for composers? So we're trying to solve this problem for composers. But then the more I thought about it, it's like, actually, I think who it's for is patrons. Who are we facing here? Who are we trying to engage? Who are we trying to attract? Who are we telling these stories for? It's for patrons. And composers are the beneficiaries. And composers are a very important part of this. Don't get me wrong. This is 
a two-sided thing and, and both those sides have a lot of importance behind them and a lot of things we need to kind of get right for each party. But fundamentally, I think the site has to appeal to patrons and has to work for them. Otherwise, the whole thing falls down. And to, to go back to what you were saying about the sense of backing a winner, yeah, we're digging down a lot into what patrons' motivations are. Of course, signing up, once signing up. I've certainly heard that sentiment that you were articulating from some would-be patrons. I remember one person describing, uh, imagine you found Mike Oldfield on Music Patron and he was 20 years old and just starting out and imagine you were supporting him before he wrote to be the Bells and then you were part of this huge sensation. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing ever? And I agree, it would be. Wouldn't everybody like to be part of that journey? But then we've got other patrons who... Interesting that there was one guy I was talking to recently who he said, I, I started supporting this composer and their kind of music is not the sort of music I normally listen to. But now that I'm supporting him and getting these updates and pieces of content from him, it's really making me think. It's bringing to life all kinds of memories that I hadn't thought about. It's adding to my general well-being as a person. It's making me take time in my day to listen to more music. And that is so special. That's a very different kind of patron value that's being created there, but I'd argue kind of equally as important. I think the the insight around who the site is for resonates, if only from, and I'm sorry to say it this way, but if only from sort of a tech startup point of view, right? Like the focus on the customer. And in this case, the customer that's actually spending money is the patron. So it would make sense that you'd arrive at that in terms of the person you need to make it easier for or attractive for. Along those lines, what, what's the self-image of music patron? Are you an arts organization? Are you a, are you a, a tech startup? Like what's your, what's your self, what's your, what's your story that you tell yourselves? I think it's a mix of different things. And maybe because it's a mix, I see it as something slightly disruptive in a good way. So, yeah, I think in many ways we are a tech startup. You know, we're trying to create a digital product here. We're doing it in an agile, iterative way. We're adopting a lot of the principles from the tech world. For me, that's a really exciting thing because I've worked a lot in the arts, done many different things. Certainly in this country, I have very rarely seen that kind of approach applied to the arts. And I've often thought, what if? Yeah, my husband's a software developer and I see his way of working and I thought, well, hang on, if we apply that to the art, we could do extraordinary things. So now I have that opportunity and it's brilliant. So on the one hand, you know, we are a tech startup. On the other hand, we're a non-profit. We're being incubated within a bigger company called Sound of Music. And they are the UK's national organisation for new music. They're a charity. So we're very much kind of part of their ethos and very much with kind of philanthropy at our heart, which is different from a lot of the tech world. There are non-profit techs, but there are plenty that are not, <laughs> probably more. And in other ways, we're, we're just a, a, an arts organisation trying to do something different. So we wear different hats. What tensions emerge when you wear those different hats? You know, are, are you having to reconcile the business with the altruistic or... What tensions result of trying to wear those multiple hats? As a core team, we don't feel a lot of tension because the kind of team that we've built around this are 
so up for this kind of challenge and so up for bringing together those different strands and those ways of thinking. So actually, at that level, it's working really well. I think the tension comes when we try and look outwards to different sections. So if we look towards the kind of tech startup world, and I read a lot of business books and blogs and things about how to run startups. And a lot of it you can apply, but then there are other things that just go, no, that, that just doesn't work in this context. What does that mean for us as a non-profit? What does that mean for us working with composers? Often I sort of have to take an idea or a way of working and, and then rethink it, reframe it, how it might apply to that. Or when we start facing towards the arts world, I think perhaps certainly my work in the past the kind of non-agile way of working has been say you want to create a festival you kind of beaver away for a year or however long it takes to create this beautifully created program you put in place all the marketing you get all the performance contracts together everything you need to do to make this perfect thing and then it happens and you hope that it goes smoothly inevitably it doesn't because that's the nature of these things yeah you're kind of trying to create something as polished as possible and what I love about the way that we're working is we're very open and honest about the fact we don't have all the answers and that we're testing as much as we can as we go along. I, I describe it as working with the garage door up. We, we've very deliberately launched this beta site and it's not polished, but it's doing enough to tell us things and we can build on that learning. And one bit of business advice which I really took on board was if you're not slightly embarrassed when you're launching, you've launched too late. Oh. <laughs> and there's a difference between being embarrassed and being ashamed or like crossing legal boundaries, things like that. You know, there's a certain amount you do need in place to launch. But yeah, I really like this idea of like, oh, it's not quite ready yet. But what, what does ready mean? When will, will we be ready? We just need to go now. And we don't have to have a huge bells and whistles launch. We just go to a few people, get them involved, see what that looks like, build on that learning. Yeah, it's, it's a great way of working. Well, that seems like very much an adaptation of that technology product ethos of a minimum viable product and put something out there and just get signal from the users to see how right or wrong your hypothesis was and then just start iterating as soon as possible. Yeah. It's amazing that you that you've been able to apply that in the arts and the nonprofit world, which I would think if it's for you, it's anything like in the States, that type of an innovative model might not necessarily be, I wouldn't say welcome, but certainly not well deployed <laughs> in that world. Mm, I think I'd agree with that. We're very lucky to have some great minds who are contributing to this from the tech world, from the digital world, from the art. And I think that's really making the difference here. Yeah, we've got that broad expertise. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. And what drew you or what brought you? Where, where, where were you immediately before Music Patron? And sort of what was your journey through the, the arts world to arrive here? So I... I started my own festival in St Andrews in Scotland. It's called St Andrews Voices, and it's a vocal choral festival with the idea to celebrate the voice in all kinds of different ways. So within classical music, you know, there are choral concerts, there's leader, there's opera, 
and then there's beatbox and jazz and acapella and all kinds of things. So that was a very wonderful but steep learning curve to sort of start something like that. I guess that gave me a taste of entrepreneurship and made me realize that sort of anything is possible if you put your mind to it and kind of have the drive and the passion to see it through. And I, I did another festival alongside that as artist director of Litchfield Festival, which is in the Midlands in the UK near Birmingham. And that's a beautiful cathedral city and the festival happens inside the cathedral and takes over this cathedral space for 10 days and turns it into a concert venue with the lighting and the sound and everything. And it's, it's a multi-art festival, so there's yeah, all different kinds of music, but also literature, dance, comedy. So that was really fun too. Kind of my background is within music, but I really enjoyed kind of understanding more about other art forms as well and bringing them together in kind of interesting thematic ways. So I was doing those things and then I saw this job advert for the music patron and it was part of this organisation, Sound of Music, which I have long kind of followed with interest, the work that they do, and I really respect them and the people that work there. So I guess it was sort of Sound of Music in particular that drew me to it and then reading more about the project. I had two reactions. I had one, this sounds really interesting. And secondly, I'm not sure this is going to work. I had so many doubts about it. And even I was, as I was interviewing the job, I think I very nearly didn't do the second interview because I just sat down and thought about it. And I was like, I'm not sure this is viable. I don't know. This is such a new concept. I can't imagine it working. And I, I had a word with the people that found the music. I sort of shared my doubts. And they said, the fact that you have these doubts means that you should do the interview and express those doubts because this is the whole point of music patron that we were right at the start of this journey and we need that questioning mindset. I got the job. I was very pleased to get the job. And uh, yeah, kind of started at the start, right at the start. But what was particularly interesting about Music Patron is how it, as a project, came about. It's the brainchild of Anthony Bolton, and he is he's well-known within the finance world in London. He was a financier in the City of London for many years and really at the top of his game. And he's also a composer. So now he's retired, he's writing a lot more music, and he recently wrote an opera about Alexander Litvinenko, really interesting opera that was premiered last year. He's long supported the art and long supported new music. And I think he recognized this problem that was there for composers and that the whole landscape was beginning to shift against them. And that if composers weren't supported, there was a risk that new music wouldn't happen. Rather than just giving out money to individual composers, he thought, how can I use my money in such a way to really begin to change this landscape? positively and I think he came across Patreon and was quite inspired by that and thought well hang on there is this thing but is it working for composers and he put together a small team of consultants to kind of just start to flesh out this idea what would an organization that supports composers look like and they kind of hit upon the bare bones of, of music patrons and I think quite quickly he realized that it needed a home rather than he trying to build it out himself. 
it needed to be part of a bigger organisation and one that really had deep roots in new music. So that's how it came to Sound and Music. And then once the project had landed with them, they said, we need somebody to make this happen. So that's where I come in. But yeah, sort of interesting position because in some ways I feel like a startup founder and kind of playing that role. Also, this is Tony's idea and he's the one putting the money behind it. So we're in a very fortunate position as well because a lot of startups are having to look for investors all the time. And in the arts world, you have to fundraise all the time. In my previous festival work, I'd spend maybe 90% of my time fundraising and 10% trying to do everything else. And that's a really hard balance. To have, he, Tony's very kindly given us five years worth of funding to try and get this thing off the ground. And to have that in place, that security and that freedom to be able to do the kind of experimentation that we're doing is so important. And I think gives us a fighting chance of success. How will you ultimately transition to covering your own costs? Do the patrons support you as well? So this is another big question. Part of that comes in with gift aid. I don't know if that exists in the US, um, but here in the UK, if you give to a charity that's gift aid registered and you pay enough tax to cover the amount of gift aid that you might give, the government will give 25% back to you as a charity. If a patron gives us one pound to a composer, we as a music patron can claim an extra 25 pence on every pound. So that starts to go some way towards sustainability. We're also asking patrons if they want to give an additional percent when they make a donation. So there's a box you can tick that's 10% goes straight to music patrons support this general endeavour, as well as supporting the composer. We're just more generally thinking about what sustainability looks like as an organisation. Does that mean other investors coming in? Does that mean partner organisations? We're not quite sure yet, but yeah, there's different avenues that we could explore. Have there been any um, preliminary learnings or findings or even observations that have really resonated for you or piqued your interest? What, what, what's the initial signal telling you? I think what's really come to life for me is this connection between composers and patrons. And that's the heart of music patrons. You know, without that, what is it? This is the thing that makes music patron unique compared to anything else. It's the opportunity for you to enter into that composer's creative world, have a conversation with them, discover who they are, why they write the music they do. I knew all this intellectually because... You know, I was creating this thing. But what's changed is now that we've launched the beta site, now that we have composers creating content and patrons interacting with that content, we can see that come to life in a real emotional way. So even for myself, I feel like I've gone on a journey because now when I'm starting to watch that composer's content, I'm feeling like, oh, hang on. Having just spent five minutes with this composer, I am now seeing this particular kind of music in a different way or I'm listening to different kinds of music I might not have listened to before or I'm thinking about the practice that it takes to write this particular style of music. All sorts of questions. I've worked with composers throughout my career. I'm deeply fascinated by them but I, even I haven't had the chance to really think about some of these things. For me that's a, like, it's an aha moment where you go, oh I get it. This is what it's about. 
And I really, I want to create those aha moments for everybody involved in music patients. So what we're doing right now is trying to find a way for everybody, all the stakeholders involved, to have that experience. So us as a team, our steering group, the wider Sound of Music organisation, we want the composers to be experiencing that too. Watch each other's content. How does that make you feel? Put yourself in a patron's youth. And of course, first and foremost, the patrons. We want them to have this experience. And we're beginning to do patron interviews and some surveys now to find out what that experience looks like for them. And some of them are articulating this kind of experience, which is beautiful and wonderful. That's where we want to focus. You know, how can we create more of that? And how can we share the value of that? Because I think until you've experienced it, you don't necessarily know why you should do this, why it's important. You might intellectually know, okay, giving to a composer is a good thing to do and I'm supporting the arts and I'm helping the creation of new music. Yeah, it's a good cause. But why is it really important? Why should I keep coming back to it? It's not, it's not just the giving. It's like, why should I even watch this piece of content that the composer sent me? And if you've had that aha moment, then you know why you want to watch the next thing that lands. Where would you say you are in your rollout process and and what's next? What's the next thing you have to do? So right now we've got a small group of patrons and a small group of composers and we're testing this connection between them and trying to make that as good as possible. Again, it's sort of when is good enough. So we can't stay in this phase forever. And I think fairly soon we want to be thinking about more patron recruitment. And not necessarily going huge at this stage, but I think a goal of around 200 patrons would give us, is achievable, A, and B, I think it gives us a kind of more meaningful set of data on which to work. So I think that's sort of the next step from here. After that, we want to be bringing on board more composers and opening up this application process, as I say. And ultimately, at the point that this five years worth of funding ends, we really want the patron numbers to be more like three, four, five thousand, if not much more. But yeah, and for that to take place, we need to be reaching well beyond people who are already interested in new music. It needs to be not necessarily the kind of whole general public, but either those that maybe are interested in other art forms, people who go to see contemporary dance or are interested in visual arts, have maybe never thought about composers and what they do that, given the opportunity, could have gained real value from that. Is the platform, just to ask a sort of product question, is it similar to some of the other platforms in that the creator, perhaps with help of the platform provider, determines sort of the levels that a patron comes in at? Or is it more open-ended where I can say, you know, I would like to give this, this person this amount of money? Like, what's the dynamic there from a product point of view? It's another question we've thought a lot about, and we've landed on keeping it open. So at the moment, we have a minimum level of £10 a month that you can give any custom amount from there upwards. And we may even lower that £10 limit. Yeah, we're kind of doing some testing around that. But the reason why we deliberately didn't go with particular levels is then it starts to feel quite transactional say, I give £15 a month and I get this in return, or I give £30 a month and then I get that in return. The problem we're trying to solve is that composers' time is, at the moment, has been taken up with trying to apply for funding, secure funding, and 
we don't want this to turn into yet another kind of time-consuming activity for them. So we're trying to take away some of that transactional nature. I think, of course, patrons will probably want something in return. You know, as part of our interviewing before the beta launch, a lot of patrons were saying, would-be patrons were saying they didn't want anything in return. It's kind of interesting in itself. But is that really true? You know, I think at a basic level, you want a thank you. You want to know that your money has been received and is valued and the person is grateful for it. But I think if you want to keep giving, you need motivation to do so. And that I think that motivation comes in seeing the impact of your recurring donation. My money is helping this composer do this. But it's also, it's, it's about that aha moment that I was describing. It's that, that value that you didn't even know you needed. But now it's in your life. You want more of it. That's a very interesting dynamic or an interesting sort of realization that to take away the purely transactional nature of it opens up the, the relationship a bit, but frees the composer to, to do the thing that they're there to do, as opposed to feeding this other, this now new channel or this new demand. But I also wonder, as part of the, the patron experience of realizing they're contributing, does the uh, composer have to deliver at any point? In other words, is it, do they have to present to the patron? Do they have to at some point say, this is the piece I've been working on? Or how do, how do you foster the aha moment creatively as opposed to just finding someone who can never finish a, pro <laughs> a project and now has a source of funding to allow them to be aimless forever? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. Um, yeah, we're kind of testing all of this. We'll have yeah. to see where it gets to. Again, we sort of asked ourselves, should this be more project-based funding? So, you know, the composer says, there's this particular piece that I want to write, and I need you, my patrons, to help me make it happen. And we stayed clear of that for the moment, partly because we don't want to get involved in or get in the way of the commissioning process that already exists, because we are not a performing body. We're not a venue. We're not a group of performers who could make this piece happen in that kind of reality. The danger is that if a piece is commissioned by patrons and the composer writes it, but then there's no way of realizing that piece, that would be a bit tricky. Yeah. So it, it, it's not impossible. It's not an avenue that we've completely closed off. And I think there might be a place for more project-based asks on music patrons. But for now, we are deliberately keeping that quite open. And it's more about supporting this composer as a creative person that money goes towards whatever they see most fit to forward their career and that might be studio time it might be adding to commission fees you know that's an interesting model because the commission fees that are being offered in this country are often nowhere near covering the amount of time that it takes to write that piece yeah. And so, you know, this is kind of like, okay, well, here's an extra amount of money that just makes it viable for you to be a composer. And you don't have to take on that extra non-musical job just to pay the bills. This means you can take on this prestigious commission and really focus on it. Are the composers allowed to do appeals for a situation like that? Like, I've had this opportunity for a commission in order to get it done in the time that's required. I'd have to give up my other teaching job. Dear patron, would you help me with this? Like how, how direct is the appeal that the composer's making at this point? At this early stage, I'd say the ask is quite general, but 
it could become more focused over time. Where do you think you'll be at the five-year mark or where, where, what's your, what's your hope and aspiration? It's at the 5,000 patrons and X number of composers and it's a standalone organization. That's the, that's the North Star. Exactly. You know, we really want to be making a difference to a significant number of composers. Not just that, but I think bringing general awareness of the value of composers and the value of new music to a much broader cross-section of society. I think if you stop somebody in the street, what's a composer? Um, Who is a composer? Mm. I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to answer the question, or maybe they'd say Mozart, Beethoven. If you say, actually, there are composers living today, and they're writing all kinds of different music, and you can have a listen to what they're doing. That would be exciting. You know, the way that people equate authors with books, I don't think that connection exists for composers and music. I think it should do. Do you have a diagnosis for that? Is it because it's not often the composer that's the performer? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think it's partly about education as well. In schools, we're taught that this book is written by this person, maybe the author will come and speak at school and things like that. So you kind of get a real sense of like, oh, okay, people write books. And and as a child, you learn to write as well and you learn to read, but you don't necessarily have the opportunity to learn how to read music. Not everybody is, is lucky enough. We all have music in our lives, but we don't necessarily think about where that music has come from, who's writing that music, who's performing that music, what the whole thing is just to make that music happen. Yeah, it's a different literacy level, I suppose. If you if you can read and write, you can be an author. You may not be good or acclaimed, but you can put pen to paper. Whereas if you can hear music or sing, it doesn't necessarily mean you can compose. Although I would argue, I guess you can. You could you could put together a simple melody. You could you could bang out a rhythm. Maybe that's yeah. part of it is people just never it's 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 a more mysterious process to people. It's been it's been abstracted away from from just the literacy or the literacy has been made to seem like a mountain to climb mm, i think that's it yeah I, I think we're all composers in a way i mean who hasn't hummed a little tune to themselves at some point in their life and that's a tune they've made up so it, it's just running with that and being creative with it and playing with it well before i let you go you've spoken a few times and you've returned to the theme of sort of the um I guess lack of a better way to say it the the role and the importance of the composer and of new music and I wonder, do you have a personal articulation of that? Like what, what we can agree it's important, but why is it important? Why, why can't we just say in the Western world, we have hundreds of years of wonderful music. We're good enough now. We don't, we don't need to invest in this. We'll never listen to all the music that's already been made. Why do we need more? What's the, what's the vitality around this, this need for new music? I love that challenge. I think it's important on so many levels. Music says something about the time that we live in. You know, there's something about music being created today that speaks to today in the way that only that music can. I'm thinking about one of our composers as an example. So Laura Bowler is she's inspired a lot by climate change and making that real in some of her music. And went to see a piece that I heard recently called Distance, which is about the impact of flight air travel on climate change and we had one group in new york one group in london live video link they were performing together with all the challenges that come with that really interesting 
that's a piece that I don't think could have been written 50 years ago or, or wouldn't have had the resonance that it has today. So I think that's really important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you coming here and telling us about what you're up to and giving us that context. I'll look forward to uh, keeping an eye on this over the next few years. And uh, hopefully five, five or so years from now, we'll be talking about the expansion of your mission and all the wonderful things that you've done and you'll, you'll be about to do. <laughs> yeah. What's this say? Musicpatron.com. All right. We will make sure that that's liberally linked to in the show notes as well. But thank you for making time to do this. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much, Sonia Stevenson. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ann Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Music